Welcome to the Lone Mama Book Club. My name is Mara, and I'm a new mom to the coolest little dude, Rowan. Motherhood can be so many things at once. Beautiful, heartbreaking, joyful, frustrating, unifying, and isolating. I created this club to build a community amongst book-loving moms and pave a way for us to discuss some of our favorite or not-so-favorite reads. Our books focus on coming of age, womanhood, and motherhood. My hope is that this community will help make even just one fellow mama not feel so alone. Although our journeys may look different, we are all in this together. So take some you time, grab a book, and let's dive in. Welcome to episode six of the Lone Mama Book Club. In this episode, we are going to discuss The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna. I'll be reviewing what this book is about, give a brief background on the historical events that this book is based on, and share my likes and dislikes. This is the second book by Kristen that I'll be reviewing for the podcast, and I honestly just couldn't help myself. February is my birthday month, so I wanted to pick a book that was something I would have chosen outside of my specific considerations and selections for this podcast. I am really drawn to books that occur during World War II. I have read a lot of historical fiction that's written about this time period. Some that come to mind include All the Light We Cannot See, The Book Thief, The Storyteller, The Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, The Lilac Girls, The Last Bookshop in London, Atonement, Eye of the Needle, and ironically, since I just discussed this book last episode, Great Circle. And the list really does go on. What happened during World War II was nothing short of horrific. And for those listening that may not be as passionate or well-versed as I am, World War II officially began in 1939 and ended in 1945. In the span of those six years, an estimated 45 to 60 million people died, including 6 million Jews that were murdered in Nazi concentration camps. I feel that it is important to read books that provide insight to the tragedies that occurred during this time period. I think it's vital to know what happened, to know what humanity is capable of, and to hear the stories of those that experienced the atrocities that occurred during this time in history. There have been numerous books depicting events surrounding World War II and specifically the Holocaust that have been deemed controversial. Many books have been either banned in schools around the United States throughout the years or challenged. And what challenged means is there's an attempt to remove or restrict said book. Examples of these books include Night by Eli Wiesel, Sophie's Choice by William Styron, The Diary of a Young Girl by Anne Frank, Number the Stars by Lois Lowry, and the most recent to be banned is Mouse by Art Spiegelman. Something that I can't help but want to discuss on this podcast, both as a book lover and as a mom, is the banning of books. Let's just clear one thing up with Mouse. Mouse was banned in a county in Tennessee. Uh, and has been removed from the school district's eighth grade curriculum. So when we say eighth grade, we're talking about 13-year-old students. I've seen a lot of misinformation circulating out there that this book was available to young children, and that is false. 
Just so you know, most school districts have an official selection policy for school libraries, including the books that are provided during the school year. Elementary school libraries typically stock books from kinder reading levels to young adult, and middle school through high school libraries house books from young adult to adult. So to be clear, there's no chance that Knight or Mouse or any of the other previously mentioned books surrounding the Holocaust would be found in an elementary school library, let alone in the curriculum. As a mother, I do understand the importance of providing age-appropriate books. But going back to focusing on banning books, I just can't get behind it. I mean, ironically, book banning is an attribute of fascism, and it frankly should not exist. Mouse was banned because of foul language, depiction of suicide, and I'm air quoting here, nudity. For those of you who haven't read this graphic novel, the characters of this novel are mice and cats. And the nudity referenced was that of a cat, which in my experience, typically do not normally wear clothes on a day-to-day basis. But I digress. The Board of Education in this particular county in Tennessee voted to ban this book, and it was removed from the curriculum. By the way, one member of this board admitted to not even reading this book. I really am trying not to dive into Mouse, uh, since that's not what we're here for, but I do want to say that it is a Pulitzer Prize winner for a reason, and it was actually published in book form in 1986, and has been used in school curriculum for a little bit now. So, come on. Anyway, the conversation that I really do want to start from all this is, what have you decided for your children? I encourage parents and guardians listening in to think about the boundaries you would want around what your child is reading. You see, I personally believe it's ultimately the parent's job to determine what is and is not appropriate for their child to read. I think it's on the parents to guide their child or children through the tough realities of life, whether those realities are realized through personal real-life experiences or literature. And to be realistic, if your school-aged child utilizes their school library, they'll be selecting books without you. It's important to know how school libraries are stocked, again, going back to what I mentioned about being stocked based on age-appropriate books, and it's up to you, the parent or guardian, to create boundaries for your child or children. The library is there to serve all members, not just yours, and it's the librarian's responsibility to provide educational books and materials. It's the parent's or guardian's job to know what our children are reading and what we deem is okay for them. In my household, we're aiming on raising a kind, confident, and resilient child. We are nurturing a trusting relationship that will empower my son to bring up any upsetting or disturbing topics to us for discussion. I'm really not too worried about outside influence somehow corrupting my child. I especially don't believe that a book is going to harm my child. I want my son to see the real world and know the truth about people and history and events. Exposure to the truth will prepare him for reality and hopefully make him a more compassionate person to others. Kind of going on in this vein of how I view 
banning of books and challenging of books to be somewhat ridiculous is looking at children's books. Yes, there are children's books out there that have been challenged. One such is a book titled Entango Makes Three. This book's literally about two male penguins that mate and get a chance to raise a baby penguin together. This book isn't even fiction. It's based on a true story. The three penguins are real, and they reside at the Central Park Zoo in New York City. This book has been on the top 10 books challenged list from the ALA, or the American Library Association, multiple times since its release in 2005. It was on the top 10 list as recently as 2019. And it's all because this book portrays a same-sex relationship. The thing is, is same-sex relationships exist. That's real life. And I don't find this topic to be controversial in the least. I have this book on Rose Bookshelf. It's in his library. And I find that it adds value. What value, you might ask? Well, I think it will make it so that my son views same-sex relationships as normal. He, therefore, will have more kindness and compassion for individuals who are gay. A win for me, and in my opinion, a win for society. Tying that into the idea of banning really any book, but banning books on the Holocaust, since that's what we're talking about today, banning books isn't really the answer. Most of the time, the truth hurts. The truth is uncomfortable. And that's okay. Books that delve into the Holocaust will be those things and many more. But we need them. We need to know the events that happened during this time period so that we can understand what hate can do so that we do not forget, so that we can be more kind and compassionate individuals. There was a recent survey done by the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany or also known as the Claims Conference, and the results were posted in September 2020. This survey was the first survey to pull all 50 states on Holocaust knowledge among millennials and Gen Zs. The results are as follows, and I quote, Nationally, there is a clear lack of awareness of key historical facts. 63% of all national survey respondents do not know that 6 million Jews were murdered, and 36% thought that 2 million or fewer Jews were killed during the Holocaust. Additionally, although there were more than 40,000 camps and ghettos in Europe during the Holocaust, 48% of national survey respondents cannot name a single one. To top it off, 20% of millennials and Gen Zs in New York feel that the Jews caused the Holocaust. New York surprisingly had some of the worst results from the survey. So let's continue advocating, reading, and writing stories surrounding the Holocaust. We obviously need them. I've said this before, but I really do have a strong passion for history. So please allow me to give a brief overview of the world wars. And I'll specifically focus on France during World War II, since that's where the story of the Nightingale is based. So World War I, or the Great War as it was known, left Europe destabilized. Germany in particular. 
You see, the Treaty of Versailles, which formally ended World War I, held Germany responsible for starting the war and inflicted punishment on Germany for that. Germany lost territories, had to reduce military forces, and had to make reparation payments to the Allied powers. As a result, Germany was economically and politically weakened. This allowed Adolf Hitler to take advantage and quickly rise to power. What's alarming is that back in 1924, the USA granted a $200 million loan to Germany to help stabilize Germany's economy under the Dawes Plan. The Dawes Plan reduced Germany's yearly payments, so it made payments dependent on economic prosperity, and it granted that large loan to help promote recovery. Despite this act being a success, Hitler was still a critic. He stated that it did nothing to help reduce the total reparation due, and eventually his popularity and power grew, as did his obsession with the idea that there was a superior German race. He believed war was the only way to purge and make room for this race to thrive. So in the late 1930s, Hitler went against the Treaty of Versailles, and he formed alliances with Italy and the Soviet Union. And then he sent German troops to occupy Austria in 1938. In 1939, Hitler made his move on Poland, causing Poland's allies, France and Great Britain, to declare war. And so World War II started. From there, Germany fought to expand its control across Europe. And in 1940, the war began in earnest. After conquering Belgium and the Netherlands, German troops easily made it to the Maginot Line. Uh, this line was a defensive barrier built as a precaution after World War I along the French border. It was thought to have been impenetrable, but German troops were able to break through. Germany began taking over France with the help of Italy, whose dictator supported Hitler. When German soldiers reached Paris in June of 1940, it had been declared an open city already, and it was declared that in hopes of preventing major destruction. This made it super easy for German troops to take over. France's new government leader, Philippe Pétain, he was a World War I hero, uh, and he took over for the prime minister in hopes of boosting morale. He quickly went and asked for an armistice. This divided France into two sections one under German military occupation, and the other under Patan's government. Unfortunately, Patan's government cooperated with the Nazis, which resulted in suffering on both sides. By 1942, a French fascist and Nazi collaborator, Pierre Laval, won the trust of Adolf Hitler, and he took over for Patan. Patan then just honestly became a figurehead. By 1942, there was no unoccupied versus occupied sections in France anymore. All of France was occupied. Through 1942, German troops began preparing to deport French Jews. By June 1942, Jews were required to wear yellow stars to identify them. And then German officials and French police conducted roundups of Jews in France throughout that same summer. One major event that happens to be outlined in the Nightingale is known as, and I'm going to butcher this, the Velvodrome de Hiva, or Vel de Hiv Roundup. This roundup occurred between July 16th and 17th of, of course, 1942 in Paris. French police rounded up thousands of men, women, and children throughout Paris. Around 7,000 Jews were rounded up, and among them, 4,000 children. 
Some were immediately transported to Drancy. It was a transit camp for Jews being deported from France. But the rest of the arrestees were crowded together in that sports arena known as that Veldihiv. This space was not equipped to handle this many people. There was hardly any space to lie down, and those incarcerated faced truly horrifying conditions. For example, no thoughts or arrangements had been made for food or water or sanitary facilities, and the ventilation system had been sealed and locked down to prevent escape. These individuals stayed in these conditions for five days. Then guards began sending women, men, and children to camps and killing centers. At the end of July, the remaining adults were separated from their children and sent to Auschwitz. Over 3,000 children remained separated from their parents until they too, and this is horrible, were deported to Auschwitz themselves. German authorities continued this deportation of Jews from France until August 1944. In all, around 77,000 Jews living on French territory perished in concentration camps and killing centers. The overwhelming majority of them were at Auschwitz, which, based on that survey that I mentioned, I may need to point out it was the largest concentration camp. It's estimated that 1.1 million people were sent to Auschwitz, and most of them were murdered. This event makes me literally sick. I almost couldn't continue the book after reading this particular part, and I may have even thrown it away from me. Side note, I definitely did. I have always had a strong emotional response when learning and reading about the Holocaust, but now that I'm a mother, it is almost unbearable to read about. But I do stick by my thoughts on how important it is to keep the memory of what happened alive. But getting back to the story at hand, the Nightingale follows two sisters and their lives during German-occupied France. It's based in a fictional town, Curavieu, that is modeled after French towns that you would find along the Loire Valley in southern France. Both sisters could not be more opposite of one another and find themselves faced with impossible choices. It's a book about survival and love, and it really brings up the question of what type of person you would be in the face of war, injustice, and chaos. The story occasionally bounces from World War II to 1995. In these chapters, there's an unnamed elderly woman coming to terms with her cancer diagnosis and her past. It offers a lovely twist at the end of the book, which I'll save for those who have not yet read it. So what did I like and dislike about the book? A bone of contention for me and many other readers out there was the historical accuracy of this novel. Now, I do believe we should keep in mind that this story is fictional. It's based on true events, yes, but it is still fiction. For example, I saw one review out there rip into the German occupation plotline. This reviewer seemed to think that because this fictional town was located south of Paris, it was automatically in the unoccupied section of France. They therefore thought that there was no way German forces would have taken over this town. Since I can't help but play devil's advocate, I researched a little and found a map that outlines occupied and unoccupied France. Lo and behold, the Loire Valley ended up being split in half. Therefore, it's quite feasible for Vianne's town to be located in occupied France. 
What bothers me more about this historical inaccuracy aspect of the book, it's a couple things. One, the only term that Kristen uses to reference the soldiers on the Axis power side is Nazi. Let's talk about the definition of Nazi. A Nazi was a member of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, which eventually became known as the Nazi Party. Adolf Hitler was the Nazi Party's leader. Again, he rose to power, established a totalitarian regime known as the Third Reich, and then being commander-in-chief, Hitler reorganized Germany's military structure under that Third Reich. And I could totally say this wrong, but Wehrmacht was the unified armed forces of Nazi Germany from 1935 until 1945. And it consisted of the German army, the German navy, and the German air force. The designation Wehrmacht replaced the previously used term Rixwehr and was the manifestation of the Nazis' regime efforts to rearm Germany to a greater extent than the Treaty of Versailles permitted. Members of the Wehrmacht were the soldiers that were involved in fighting or were at the war front. Then there was also the SS. There were two main groups of the SS, General SS and Armed SS. The General SS was responsible for enforcing the racial policy of Nazi Germany and general policing. The Armed SS consisted of combat units within Nazi Germany's military. That's not all, though. There was a third component of the SS, SSTV, known as the Death's Head Units, which ran the concentration camps and extermination camps. Additional subdivisions of the SS included the Gestapo and the SD organizations. These organizations were tasked with the detection of actual or potential enemies of the Nazi state, the neutralization of any opposition, policing the German people for their commitment to Nazi ideology, and providing domestic and foreign intelligence. The SS was the organization most responsible for the genocidal murder of Jews during the Holocaust. So I find it, even though it might be minor, aggravating and misleading that all the soldiers in Hannah's novels are simply referred to as Nazis. Furthermore, Beck, who is the first soldier assigned to bunk with Vianne, one of the sisters, would never have been doing the tasks that he was doing in the novel if he was merely in the German army. Another historical inaccuracy that gets me, because we all know I'm a nurse, is when Sophie, Vianne's daughter, gets sick. Beck, that soldier I just mentioned, brings back antibiotics for her. Let me just state that there were not antibiotics available to the public at this time. Penicillin was discovered in 1928 and used successfully for the first time in 1942. So this is just really an unfortunate oversight that doesn't seem to align with Kristen Hanna's attention to detail. That's not to be said that penicillin was not eventually used in World War II. Uh, it was eventually produced to be used specifically for government use and for the soldiers of World War II. But that wasn't until later in the war. So we're talking beyond 1942. Uh, so the last few years of the war. And most certainly a German soldier located in a remote town in France would not have access to this medication. So let's talk about the lack of attention to detail. 
There were several sections of this book that glossed over important sequences and events and lacked the in-depth description I think it deserved. One example that comes to mind is the younger sister Isabel's heroic journey over the Great Pyrenees Mountains. I was left wanting more. Isabel is supposed to be based off of a real person. That person is Countess André de Jean. André created one of the most effective escape lines for Allied airmen out of Nazi-occupied Europe during the Second World War, before she was caught, interrogated by the Gestapo, and sent to a concentration camp. André was responsible for creating the Comet Line. She arranged a series of safe houses in and around Brussels, where soldiers and air crew could await escort out of the country along a complicated and intense route. She found plenty of people who were willing to put themselves at risk to help, even though such help or activity was subject to the death penalty. Her first escape group comprised of 11 men who were sent over from Nazi-occupied France, so Paris and beyond, over to the Great Pyrenees, which then they crossed on foot into neutral but also pro-Nazi Spain. The Comet Line eventually got the support of MI9. This branch helped to set up bringing home stranded servicemen from the occupied territory. On her 33rd run to Spain, while leading three RAF men at the beginning of 1944, Andre and her three charges were arrested in France. She was interrogated by the Gestapo and told them point blank that she was responsible for this whole idea, creating the comet line and multiple escapes, and they point blank did not believe her. In turn, she was sent to the infamous women's concentration camp, Ravensbrück. She sidestepped further interrogation by disappearing and blending into the general prison population in the concentration camp. After the war, Andre went to the Congo to work as a nurse in a leper colony. She later would undertake similar work in Ethiopia. For her wartime heroism, she was awarded the George Medal by the British, the Medal of Freedom by the Americans, and an honorary commission in the Belgian army, and was created a countess by the King of Belgians. So knowing all that, I really don't see how Isabel is portrayed and comes across as just a beautiful but careless person. I'm not sure if that was Kristen Hanna's intention, but that's how I perceived Isabel. Especially when Isabel's character is supposed to be based off of such an unwavering, strong individual. And last, I did not love that the book focuses a lot on, well, love. Romantic love, that is. Between Viana and Beck and Isabel and Gatan. Kristen seems to A, love a rebel, and B, loves writing about love. Don't get me wrong. Love is a beautiful thing. Loving and being loved by someone is something I personally think is vital to a happy life. However, romantic love isn't everything, and it shouldn't be shoved into every nook and cranny of a story. It irritated me that Kristen didn't focus more on the love between the sisters and the love between mother and daughter. The book could have totally been fine without 
any of the romantic love stuff outside of Ian and Anthony. So what did I like about this book besides the time period? One, this book made me think. It had me diving into research surrounding World War II. It had me looking up all sorts of banned books throughout history and more. And I honestly loved that. I also did admire how motherhood was portrayed in certain parts of the story. Vianne was a woman who wanted to lie low under the radar to ensure that her daughter Sophie stayed out of danger. When she gets the opportunity to help save orphaned Jewish children, Vianne takes it, despite her fears for her own daughter. So this part of the story definitely made me do some internal reflection. I believe that I would do anything in my power to protect my son. But what would I be teaching my son if I stood by and watched the suffering of others? There's definitely a fine balance to be had. Going off of that, there's a quote from one of the 1995 sections of the book where the elderly woman talks about not showing her son enough of who she is as a person. That she let being a mother and the idea of what a mother should be get in the way of allowing her true self to shine and how it was a disadvantage. I think this is an important point for all the moms and dads listening out there. It is okay for our children to be additions to our lives. We are allowed to continue to be ourselves and to do what we love. And we are still good parents, probably better for allowing our children to see our true selves. Overall, I admire that Kristen Hanna wanted to write a novel reflecting on what it was like for women left behind during World War II, especially in an occupied zone in Europe. It got a little too emotional, a little too limited, and didn't hit the historical accuracy mark. However, if you aren't picking up this book for the history part of it all, then it remains a solid story. I would give this a rating of three out of five stars. Now, a little fun fact is there's a movie in the works for this book. It seems to have jumped around to different directors and producers over the last few years. However, Dakota and Elle Fanning are supposedly going to play the two main characters. I will definitely give it a watch if and when this happens. The next episode for this podcast is aimed to launch on Tuesday, March 22nd. This episode is going to be focused on my guilty pleasures, sans the guilt. I'll go over a few of my favorite books that I've been reading and rereading recently, as well as answer some listener questions about myself and motherhood. If you have something you'd like to ask, be sure to send me an email or DM. I'll link my contact info in the show notes. As always, I like to select charities to donate to you, so if you found yourself moved by the topics that we just discussed in this episode, please go ahead and check out the following. For the first one, I have the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum located in Washington, D.C. The second, I'll be doing the American Library Association, or the ALA, which I referenced for helping identify banned books and creating more support in libraries across the nation. And for last charity, we'll be doing the American Jewish Committee, or AJC, which is the leading global Jewish advocacy organization. As always, thank you for listening in and for all the support. Until next time, later, mamas.